This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Richard Rodriguez. He's a journalist and an essayist. I spoke with him on August 6, 2014, at the Chautauqua Institution in upstate New York. You can download the MP3 of the produced episode with Richard Rodriguez at onbeing.org. Again, in the interest of providing our very special guests maximum time and recording time, I'm going to proceed with our announcements for the day and let me begin by welcoming you all to the two o'clock interfaith lecture series. My name is Robert Franklin, I'm director of the Department of Religion, and I do have a couple of announcements. Audio recordings of today's lecture will be available at the Amphitheater Gazebo later this afternoon. Video discs may also be ordered at the gazebo and picked up later. As you heard from my dear colleague, Roger Dudke, earlier, representatives are once again in front of the Hall of Missions to help you sign up for this week's Chautauqua Dialogues. This is a program that takes place every Friday at 3.30, where small groups meet each Friday at assigned venues to discuss the week's two o'clock interfaith lectures. However, you must sign up in advance to receive a location. Tomorrow afternoon, we invite you to come to the Mystic Heart Spiritual Practices of the World Religions Seminar on Islam, Sufism, from 12.30 to 1.45 in the Hall of Missions. The teachers will be Sharifa Felicia Norton and Minudin Charles Smith. And the title of the seminar will be The Alchemy of Happiness, an exploration drawing upon Sufi perspectives, poetry, and practices. Finally, we'd like to remind you that we simulcast this two o'clock interfaith lecture for the Hall of Christ daily, which is across the grove, and it's always a comfortable place, especially when it rains. Let us not speak of yesterday's weather. And so these are the events of, sponsored by the Department of Religion. And now to present today's two o'clock program in the Hall of Philosophy, where this week we're focusing on the theme, Conversations on the American Consciousness. Today's very distinguished guests are Krista Tippett, a recent National Humanities Award winner, and Richard Rodriguez, the acclaimed author, television and print journalist, and public intellectual. You'll be pleased to know that immediately after this conversation, Dr. Rodriguez will be doing a book signing on the porch at the Hall of Missions and that his books will be sold there as well. We're most grateful to, to the John Brown Campbell Department of Religion Endowment, which provides funding for this week's Interfaith Lecture Series and delighted that Dr. John Brown Campbell is with us this week. So now please join me in extending a very warm Chautauqua welcome to Krista Tippett and Richard Rodriguez. Thank you. So the weather seems to be our friend, and we're going to hope that continues. Um, this is day three, and uh, you know I did this the first time two years ago, five days on stage at Chautauqua. And uh, apart from the fact that it's wonderful to have a conversation in this space, um, it's a wonderful thing to have a cumulative conversation with the same thousand people over five days. And I, I think you're probably already experiencing, we had Roberto Unger on Monday, Imani Perry yesterday, and I'm just delighted that Richard Rodriguez has joined us from California today. 
Um, Richard Rodriguez was born in Sacramento, California, the first-generation child of Mexican immigrants to, to America. To say he is a journalist and essayist doesn't quite do him justice. He is one of America's greatest observers of self and society, bringing a psychological, religious, historical, and literary lens to how people behave and why, starting very often with himself. His lyrical writing embodies the way particular human experience, articulately recorded, can reveal deep truths about what is enduringly human and universally animating. His books include Hunger of Memory, The Education of Richard Rodriguez, Brown, The Last Discovery of America, and in 2013, Darling, a spiritual autobiography. So I start every one of my conversations, um, whether I'm with a quantum physicist or a journalist, uh, with this question, which is a question you've explored in great depth in your writing. Would you tell us about the religious and spiritual background of your childhood? Uh, it was total. I grew up uh, Roman Catholic, uh, though that doesn't even do it justice. I grew up in Sacramento, California, in a, in a neighborhood that uh, was... I hate to use the term white, because white doesn't tell me anything. White doesn't tell me enough. White doesn't tell me that your father was a coal miner. Uh, white doesn't tell me that your, your son died in a canoe accident. Uh, white doesn't, but it was white. Uh, and uh, I went to a Catholic school where everyone was Catholic, with one exception, Bobby Wright, who was Episcopalian. Um, and he would bow his head when we, when we prayed. Um, and I was surrounded by Irish voices. Those were my first English voices. Mm. And uh, that's how I learned the English language through Ireland, oddly enough. Um, all the priests, all the nuns were Irish. Sisters of Mercy were the, were the, the nuns. And I dedicate Darling to them um, because they were, they were truly the first feminists of my life. But the remarkable thing was that from an early age, I was also an altar boy. That is, I was on the altar speaking Latin, to the, responding in Latin to the priest. Uh, and to this day, I remember. I remember the weight of a coffin helping one day when there weren't, weren't enough mourners at a gravesite, helping to carry a coffin to, to the open pit. And then going back to arithmetic class in an hour, you know, the, the seamlessness of that life. But I remember also, you know, the first lines, this is the power of memory, the power of poetry, to, to instill itself on a child's imagination. Adeum um, Those are the first lines I say in response to the priest. I will go to the altar of God, the God who gives joy to my youth. So people ask me now, you know, what was the church to you? Um, this church was in other ways rejected me. It was completely embracing and total. And it, it began... Um, at an early age and just grew in mystery and majesty. Anton Dorndorf was the choir conductor. Uh, we had um, Mozart masses, and there was this sense that I belonged to this European civilization. Mm. At the same time that I would go back and read Mark Twain, who refers to Romans and, and Papists as you know aliens in some sense, um, or Henry James, who goes to to Europe to meet a society that was already mine in Sacramento. So it was like living two seasons, summer and winter, 
there was the church, the Catholic Church, and then there was America, hmm. the America of Mark Twain and Henry James. You know, there's this um, line in your, in your memoir, Hunger of Memory, that I thought was so striking. You said, of all the institutions in their lives, only the Catholic Church had seemed aware of the fact that my mother and father are thinkers, persons aware of their experience of their lives. Yes. This is, I think this is the power of, of liturgy and ritual, the seasons of grief and triumph, the seasons of renewal and sorrow, um, the, 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 the power of religion to make us reflective of the lives we are leading seems to me to, to, to encourage an inwardness, which I would call intellectual. I would, it, the intellectual life, that is the self-aware of itself living, well or not well, but living. And that's what religion gave us. Um, it didn't give us many other things. The, the homilies in, at, at the church were never as rich as the music and as the, as the seasons of, of grief and joy. Mm. But they, it was deep. And when I think of what the, 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 the peasant church all over the world is still able to give people is that same consolation of the inner life. No small gift. No. But it's not something you hear people talking about. Certainly not when they're making generalizations about religion. It's wonderful. Well, partly because people, when they talk about religion, they talk about it at a different level. They talk about it at an institution level. Yeah. There's very little description of what, what being Christian is at a, in, in one's daily life, how one lives one's life. I must tell you, Christy, I live most of my life now among people who are not religious, people who are anti-religious. My brother considers himself not an atheist, but an anti-theist. Um, he says the word atheism doesn't, doesn't grasp the fullness of his, of his negativity toward religion. Um, and so I write largely, when I write about religion, as I do, I write for an audience that I do not assume is religious. One of the shocks of coming here was to find not only readers parading around like some kind of 19th century parade this morning, <laughs> but, but to find, I came out of the, 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 the place where I was spending the night, and there was a circle of people praying. Yeah. And I have been to monasteries of all sorts all over the world. I've never seen a, a, a place like this uh, that, that is united by a religious sensibility. And it, it makes me very humble because I, this is not the world I'm familiar with. When I write, I'm always worried about what the secular reader is going to make of this line. And I'm, in some sense, I seek to entertain someone who has nothing in common with me. The, the worry I have is always that, um, you know, that my writing will be too pious uh, for the... For the secular? For the stylish, I'll call them. Okay. Or... or, or or too stylish for I the just want, You know, everybody here is stylish, too. It's just that it's summer, and they've let their guard down. <laughs> you know what I mean. There is, just a, there is something in the Protestant tradition which I deeply admire. I studied Protestantism when I went to Union Theological Seminary, um, and I was very much taken by the, plain st- the Puritan notion of plain style, the elegance of plain style. And uh, it is not my elegance, I should tell you. Um, I believe in the Baroque line, uh, as I believe... I believe in the Baroque altar. Um, but nonetheless, I'm always looking for stylish ways to romance the reader. But I realize that among the pious, there's always a sense, well, what is, he, is he for it or is he against it? Or what is he saying? Um, you know, the, 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 the uses of irony and paradox are not always apparent in religious uh, writing. Well, we'll, pr- we'll probably come back to that. I, 
I want to talk about your, I want to kind of go back to, <clears throat> again, the beginning of the trajectory of your life and what you've learned. And with this theme of the American consciousness, you know, here's another observation you made that Americans like to talk about the importance of family values. But America isn't a country of family values. Mexico is a country of family values. This is a country of people who leave home. Yes. And you, in your childhood, um, had to leave home linguistically and intellectually in order to un- unite your private and public selves. Yeah, uh, Octavio Paz the Great. You know, Octavio Paz the Great poet, essayist of Mexico in the last century, probably the greatest writer of the century in Mexico once told me that you cannot underestimate the importance of the, uh, the, the, the Spanish uh, uh, anti-reformation, in, uh, counter-reformation in Mexico, so that when I announced that I'm going to college, uh, Stanford, um, immediately my mother is worried in a, in a, in a, in a way that maybe... You know, Appalachia would understand this, the, the betrayal of education, that I'm going away from the family, that I'm going to get ideas that are too big for me, that, uh, that I'm, I'm going to begin to reject my, my, own, my, my own culture. And in fact, it happens. Uh, education is a subversive influence in our lives. We don't realize, especially because so much of education is, 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 is dedicated to class mobility, we don't realize that how much a price that working class families pay psychologically to have their children leave home. Yeah, the whole family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the embarrassment. D.H. Lawrence, who's a very important writer for me, his father was a coal miner. And when Lawrence writes, he doesn't sound anything like other English writers. He's, he comes from a working class. Uh, there are things in Lawrence. I remember when I carried my first uh, casket. Years later, I was reading Sons and Lovers. And there's a description of a young man who's died, uh, Paul Miller's brother, who was carried up the small entrance to a... This is in the Midlands of England, in a mining town. And, and the way the, 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 the men are carrying the coffin, the way the body moves from side to side, I th- thought to myself, oh, Lawrence knows that weight. He's carried that weight before. There are things in Lawrence that I've never read anyplace else. The, the boy at the door... Who, who sees his father with his thickened hands looking into school books, and his father, uncomprehending, moves the pages, and then the boy hides from that moment of embarrassment, the boy knowing more at that moment than the father does. And something so striking to me, again, in the trajectory of your life, is that you grew up, as you described a minute ago, being so aware of being brown in a white world and, and needing to join that white world um, to become your fullest self. One of the themes that you've been writing about and talking about here in the 21st century is that the color of your skin, brown in all its variety, is the new color of American identity. You even say Barack Obama is not the first black president, he's the first brown president. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think that you know, if he, I think that would have been stunning if we had understood what his brownness from the beginning. We we certainly understand what he's doing on the golf course. Um, that there is in this man, you know, both Kansas and Kenya. That he is he's he's mixed. That whole idea of being mixed is very difficult for Americans. We have on the one hand this notion of the one drop theory, 
that if you have one drop of African blood, you're black. And so very, very light-skinned people will tell you, well, I'm black. And I keep thinking, well, maybe I'm not getting enough sleep, you know. Um, <laughs> or people, people say, you know, I'm white. And, and many times they, they have such different colors. A lot of white people are pink and, and, and orange. And, uh, and, and at the end of summer, a lot of them are brown. But uh, they don't say that. They say that they're tanned. Um, but that in, inability to deal with mixture, I think is part of American anxiety about individuality, I think. We don't realize the complexity of people that have created us, the complexity of civilizations. I was created by Spain and by native societies in in the Americas. I I carry on my face the Indian nose, the Indian mouth. All my my religion came from Spain. My, My first language, Spanish, came from Spain. But there is obviously something in me of the Indian that, 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 that I have to account for. For me to say that I am one thing in a place where I am many things. Um, so Bill Moyer says to me, do you think of yourself as Hispanic or, or do you think of yourself as American? I say, Mr. Moyer, I think of myself as Chinese. <laughs> Every point I have is to realize the complexity of my life. And, and it is not exactly true that I grew up in a white society. My, my Mexican aunt, uh, Lola, married my uncle from India, Krishna, uh, at a time in California where um, there were the restrictions on immigration were such that Indian men could not bring women into the country. So there was a lot of Mexican-Indian marriage, intermarriage, so that I, I was quite accustomed as a child to turbans and Hindus. Uh, my, my, my uncle's sister, uh, Ruth Gupta, who became a big landowner in San Francisco. When she died, Diane Feinstein was at her funeral. But I can remember her lifting her hands over the turkey at Christmas and chanting a Hindu hymn. And the, <laughs> and the turkey did not flinch. So, but this is so interesting to think about because it's always been true, and it's certainly always been true in America, that we came from many peoples and many places. This complexity was, there's, there's some Cherokee in me, which doesn't show... Um, uh, I mean, I think what's happening now is that physiologically the mixing has started to show on us. Yes. And, I think and so, also, so is there, there's a shift in consciousness. I think you're saying, you know, this is changing us from the inside out on another level as well. I think something else is going on, too. I think that we are living in a society... Uh, my optimism about this moment is that people are falling in love all over the place, um, this is one of the great civilizations of love. It drives the churches crazy, of course, uh, because they don't, they don't want to lose their members and the, the, the purity of line. And because they also, the church, my own church, won't, will not give me the word love to describe my relationship to another man with whom I have lived for 35 years. But that's another point. Um, the, the, there is now not, you know, I remember the nuns saying uh, to us dangers of mixed marriages, by which they did not mean racially mixed but the danger of marrying a, a Methodist, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so now I get a letter from a young woman um, uh, on starched white stationery yet. Um, no email uh, she sends. And she says in the first sentence of her letter, she says that uh, my mother is a New York Jew and my father is an Iranian Muslim. And I think to myself, well, that's very brown uh, to be a Jewish Muslim. And then she says in the second line of her letter, this is a true story. She says, most Americans think that I'm a very frugal terrorist. 
I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there are things going on religiously in America that that are that are that are that our religious institutions are, are bewildered by. People who belong to more more than one faith, or Catholics who call themselves Zen Sufis. I mean, uh, it, it's within the complexity of that is the brownness that 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 may envelop us. Now, I warn you also that there are purifying movements in the world. Look at what, what's going on in Iraq right now, where, where the nation divides over, over separations, ancient separations, that we thought we had gotten over, where even in single families, where, the, where, where, where there was mixture, there, there suddenly is separation. We saw that in Rwanda also, where suddenly the tribes reassert their power to yoke the couple apart. Um, and that there comes in, in many m- movements now this desire for purity, uh, the skinhead movement in America. I'm going to go up to Idaho and I'm going to meet only white people like myself. You can keep L.A. You can keep the DMV in L.A. with all those languages. I'm going to live in a pure section with mm-hmm. pure water, with pure air. I'm going to live in this little corner. Well, that dream of purity is very much alive at exactly the moment when everything is mixing. And you took yourself on a really fascinating journey after September 11th, 2001, which was a moment in this culture where we absolutely saw this dangerous other. I mean, Islam, this religion of over one billion people, had been there all along, but we saw this terrifying face of the other. And you made this, I would say, in that context, countercultural move of... Exploring your kin- kinship with these men who were terrorists. I mean, you wrote, you, you realized I worship the same God as they in this as a monotheist. Um, so I stand in some relation to those men, and you set out to understand what had happened in that sense. Well, the, the first thing I understand is, is mystery, and that is I moved to the desert, to the yeah. great desert of the Middle East, and I realized that the God of Abraham who is the God of the Jew, the Christian, and the Muslim, um, revealed himself in the desert. You know, the distinction distinction that that these religions claim temporally is God intrudes in a moment, a moment of time. uh, The eternal God becomes temporal. He, he, He revealed himself that day, that moment. Well, he also reveals himself in time, in place. He reveals himself in that place. Well, what is that place? What is that place that the Israelis and the Palestinians are fighting over? It's sand. It is desolate sand. It is, a, it is in some places, there are deserts in Saudi Arabia that are as lunar as anything I expect to encounter in my life. This is a holy landscape. It is also a landscape that drives us crazy. Somehow in this landscape, we got the idea that there is a God who is as lonely for us as we are for him. And there is in this, this landscape also a necessity for tribe. Not for, you do not live as an individual on the desert. You live in tribes. And that tribal allegiance, that tribal impulse, leads to one, on the one hand to great consolation, but also to, to the kind of havoc we are seeking, seeing now. 
I, I, I include in my description, I have a chapter on Jerusalem as, as the great desert city, but also this, uh, our own American desert city, which is Las Vegas. Right, that's what we do with desert. Yes. We, well, when I <laughs> that's say what de- we do with desert. When I say the deserts drive us mad, I mean Las Vegas, that there is something, there is something in the desert. It's implication of death. You know, Shelley's great poem about the, 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 the royal tomb, which is now... Uh, uh, broken and, and strewn with dust, there is something about the desert that terrifies us. So Las Vegas gets this idea of playing with that idea of death. It moves, it moves since everything is in, impermanent, that I'm just going to move the Eiffel Tower down to, to uh, across the street from uh, the pyramids. Um, and that nothing, you know, I'm going I'm to roll out a carpet of, of, of golf green over, over there, and Olympic-sized swimming pools. It totally defies finitude and frailty, That's right, it? but the interesting thing now is that it's spread, that Las Vegasization is spreading now to the Middle East. I, I speak of a city like Dubai, for example. You go to the hotel and the woman says, we're going to upgrade you to a suite on the 185th floor, and, and you open the windows, and there is the desolation out there. But don't worry about that. You can go downstairs to the Ice Palace, and you can have a, snow, a snowball fight in the ice ball. Now Mecca is becoming Las Vegas. There is, there is over the Kaaba, within sight of the Kaaba, a, a vast hotel built in the shape of Big Ben. Where did they get that idea except for Las Vegas? This enormous hotel. I think it's run by the Fairmont Hotel chain. At the bottom of the hotel chain, there is a, a, a super mall of 4,000 shops. So there is in the middle of the holiest space in, in Islam this evasion of place of what the desert is. This is where we were meant to encounter God. You understand what I'm saying to you? Not, not a glade. Every Christmas I get these Christmas cards that make it appear that Jesus was born in the Swiss Alps. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the evergreen tree has all these little sparkles to it, you know, and so forth. It's desert. The, the three great ecologies of these, of these religions are the mountaintop. Martin Luther King saying before he dies, I've been to the mountaintop, where Moses goes, the, 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 the meeting place of God and man. But also the, 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 the vast plain of the desert, the, the, what I called for Jewish audiences the Valley of Kvetch, you know, for, for, for 40 years, you know, when are we going to get there? Are we there yet, you know? And finally, finally and most profoundly, the cave. You, re- you have to acknowledge when you, when you wander the desert how bright and blinding is light and how consoling is twilight and darkness. In these religions, oftentimes, shade and darkness come as, as consolations or gifts so that Muhammad has his revelation in a cave, in the darkness. It is the paradox, the happy paradox of Islam, that his illumination comes in the dark. In, 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 in Judaism, God puts Moses in the mouth of a cave so that he will not be blinded by the brightness of God. And in Christianity, the two most holy events of, the, of Christ's life, the birth of Christ, which happens in a cave, and the death of God, the, the death of Christ, and also the resurrection, happen in a cave. We, we sometimes forget, and because we are consumed by a kind of Hellenistic dream of, of coming out of the cave with Plato and into the sunlight, 
that we are people of the dark. And we should accept that darkness as part of our faith. Well, I guess, that's, I guess that leads into what I want to ask you. I mean, how did you, did you come to realize how the desert in this tradition and the cave, how these things had formed you, um, the, the Catholic spirituality that you find to be redemptive? Well, the, the deepest, I mean, the most radical Catholic spirituality I know of is, is, is Spanish. And it's the mystical tradition of the dark night of the soul. Yeah. Um, we often, you know, I end this book with, with Mother Teresa, who was, who was um, hounded by Christopher Hitchens, our great uh, uh, American atheist, going from cable channel to cable channel to tell us God was dead um, at a time in which I, do, I live in part of the year in London. And I assure you, God is not dead in London. Uh, Muslims are, 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 are plentiful as are Hindus. And there, there is a sense that this place is alive with God. Uh, but nonetheless... Mother Teresa, after her death, these letters uh, to confessors and bishops were revealed for 40 years of her life. Mother Teresa describes her life as a darkness. And there she is, more and more famous in the world, uh, mocked by Christopher Hitchens in the pages of Vanity Fair magazine. I mean, Vanity Fair magazine is like just one step up from People magazine. You open it up and all the perfume ads come come flying out. In Vanity Fair magazine, Christopher Hitchens tells us that Mother Teresa is ugly. Right. And I think to myself, well, what, what is that? What, what is in play now in America that you can say about a, a pious old woman who is bathing the dying in, in, in Calcutta? What is that? And, so, and in the end of your book, you, you do. You, you have this huge journey. And, you, and I wanted to ask you why you ended there. Because you do end with the juxtaposition of Christopher Etchens with his exuberant certainty that there is no God yes. and, and, um, to the very end of his life. And Mother Teresa, in her despair. She, I, would, I would say what happens, to Mother Teresa at the end of her life is in, a, um, in the convent, and the electrical system in Cal- that neighborhood of Calcutta goes black. There are two emergency generators. <sighs> she is... The first emergency generator is turned on. It goes dark. The second, (sighs) black, off. She dies literally in the dark. It is so moving to me that I, at the very last paragraph, I send her to heaven. Where else should this woman go? I once was with her in in San Quentin prison. We weren't prisoners, but we were visiting. Um, (laughs) And it was the most remarkable afternoon I can remember religiously. This is one of those afternoons, but just meeting you and seeing you, your curiosity and your braveness. Uh, uh, she was, there was a group of thugs that she was supposed to meet, these guys from death row, and they were all like schoolboys. And this tiny little woman, you know, four foot tall or something, with her, in her sari, um, and she, uh, she couldn't give them rosaries, which she would have done elsewhere in the world because they probably would have strangled each other with rosaries. She gave them little holy cards, And then listen to this. She tells them in that little tiny voice, she tells them, if you want to see the the face of God, look at the prisoner standing next to you. These tattoos coming up over their necks. Look Look at the man next to you. This man who was murdered and raped. That's the face of God. And I think, oh... I didn't know that. I didn't know. I'd been looking at, at the holy picture all this time. 
when I should look more, more closely at the, for, the face of the sinner to find the face of God. Mm. It's hard to move on from that. I do want to talk about immigration, which is also a very painful and open subject. In It's an opportunity yeah. uh, for Christians. Um, Christians, um, I'm telling you, um, it is noticeable, the silence of, of American Christians on this issue. Uh, it is quite clear to me uh, what the Gospels tell us to do with the stranger in our midst, unless I misread that, in which case you have to inform me what the Good Samaritan was all about. But there is something in this obliviousness that is very worrying, particularly at a time when the, the American churches, Christianity particularly, would be in decline numerically were it not for immigrant populations coming into this country. Mm-hmm. The Mormon church now, which is the fastest growing uh, church in, in the country, is, is in its majority now uh, primarily Spanish-speaking. The Southern Baptists now are becoming increasingly Hispanic in their, in their membership. At a time in which the, the, these churches are seeing the growth of these populations within their own pews, you would think that some of the leadership would speak for these, for example, the children at the border. I don't think there is a solution to the children at the border politically. What, but I, I think religiously, it seems to me that, that you know, I, I know people like Samuel Rodriguez, who on all kinds of political and social issues, which certainly would not tolerate my homosexuality. But Samuel Rodriguez has been so brave in his defense of, of immigrants that if I were Barack Obama, I would bring, because so many of the Central American countries now are evangelical Protestant in their majority, I would bring these, these, these voices to the White House. These are the voices America should be hearing, not, not John Bonner or... or, or um, these other people on Fox Television. Where are the Christians in all of this? And you know, I, I, I think there are Christians and religious people um, in those places where some of this drama is playing out with the children, for example, and they don't get covered in such a high-profile way by my fellow journalists, which is something I'm always aware of. Yes. I mean... You have, though, some really particular insights into this border, this Mexican-American border, which so defines us, but I think we tend to be oblivious to it a lot of the time and until something blows up like this. Um, I mean, you, you've talked about the psychic tension between Mexican stoicism and American optimism. I mean, can you talk about that dynamic? Well, I mean... the. I, can I say something about drugs uh, in this culture? Um, what Mexicans will ask me all the time, Mexican relatives of mine, why are the Americans so unhappy? Uh, I don't know what to tell them. Why are we taking it up our nose and putting it in our veins and when we can't be alone without drugs? We can't be with other people without drugs? We can't have sex without drugs? We can't go to sleep without drugs? We can't wake up without drugs? can't get out of bed without drugs. What is this addiction? We have destabilized much of the world with our addiction. We have, dest- we have, we have created a drug economy in Afghanistan, in Thailand, in Bolivia, and, in, and we've, we've, we've caused turmoil in Guatemala, and now we have elevated thugs, thugs in Mexico, to, to, the, to, the, to the status of billionaires with our despair, and yet we are an optimistic people. 
And yet Mexico, by comparison, is a tragic civilization in which death is very much a part of, this, of, of one's understanding of what life is. The, the paradox of, of the border right now is that you see young people coming to the American border for the opportunity of America at exactly the time when Americans are importing drugs from, the border, from, from, from Latin America because of the despair of our, of our unhappiness. Yeah. And it, the paradox of that movement in both directions is so interesting to me and, and so little noted. But it is... It is I, why don't we talk about... Imp- why don't we talk about difficult things? Why don't we talk about the real family life of America? Why don't we even talk about the, the children at the border right now? The, bo- the book I read as, a, as an American kid, and the nun told me it was the great classic of American literature, was The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And I thought, well, I don't think the nun read this book because, because the, the only villain in the book is, the nun, is a teacher, the school teacher who wants to get her hands on Huck to make him speak regularly. And, 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 and there is this, this sense of doom with the coming of the end of, of summer, the coming of autumn, when Huck Finn is going to have to speak regular. There, there is this, uh, this romance in America of being on the move, of leaving home. Well, there they are. They're seven and eight years old, and they're at their border. And we, we're horrified by them now because we don't, we don't even recognize our own myth. We don't even recognize right. the, the, the romance that, that the 19th century created about this country. This country was created by people, teenagers, usually boys, who got on their horses and went west. And sometimes they came home and sometimes they didn't. But that was, that was what we thought of as American. It is not what I think of as American now. When I go to colleges, I notice two things. I notice that it is mainly the girls who will sit in the front rows. The guys will be back in the back rows usually looking at their, at their cell phones. Um, but there is a sense now, uh, in colleges, two out of three of the students who travel abroad are girls, not boys. The girls are on the move. We may now live in the society of Barack Obama's um, mother rather than Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. She, who married Kenya, it didn't work out. She went on to Indonesia, married again, traveled, traveled, learning the foreign. This... Barack Obama describes her as reckless in an interview in Time magazine. I think she's a remarkable woman. I think this, this anxiety now in women to, 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 to learn, to be curious, is so interesting. And these are the, 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 the girls in, in the high school who will ask me questions, rarely the boys. And then I say to them, you know, I'm just here for the afternoon. I'm not gaining anything by, I'm not going to think about this day after it's over. But I've noticed that every question that came to me came from a girl. Do you boys not have any questions? And then they, they look down on their lap as though somehow the question is there. There is something going on in America sexually. We seem to know how to educate girls now better than we know how to educate boys. And it is, it is a calamity for boys because, because, because boys are falling behind and falling, I think, into a, 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 a pit of, of, of um, di- digital games. And, you know, you, you just, you've named a couple of really important things in the last few minutes. And I, and, I, and I think you've also named the important fact that we don't 
have a vocabulary for talking about what's really at stake here. We can, we can sometimes define these things in terms of policy, laws that we might take. And, you know, so I want to come back to something you, uh, you wrote about or spoke about when you were, you were actually commenting on how we, in the last 20, 30 years, well, actually before that, consigned religion to the sidelines. And then what happened in the last 20, 30 years is we had a few strident voices who emerged. We kind of gave it over to them, which yeah. made almost everybody else get really quiet. Um, but, but you made an observation that, that is relevant to this beyond that specter. You said, what, what you ask, you know, what's happened to us? and I would include myself on the cultural left, you say, is that we have almost no language to talk about the dream life of America, to talk about the soul of America, to talk about this mystery of being alive at this point in our lives, this point in our national history. Can I say, because it's churches, can I say that one of the things that, that, that concerns me about religion right now is how little we understand who we are. For example, I'm, I, since I'm in England, there's a, there's a neighborhood, an Anglican church, and they try to be very hip and try to bring in young people, and they put the, the Book of Common Prayer on a, on a Kindle machine. And I think to myself, do they not understand that, the, that these religions, the Abrahamic religions, were religions of the word, are religions of the word, and that, that, they, that their power is in the weight of the, of the word. The word became flesh. You understand? And it is something carried in a bar mitzvah, in by the child, the weight in his hands. It is kissed. It is, it is, it is re- revered as weight. That is, it, it enters history. And we seem, as Christians, well, we sort of understand that, but we sort of don't. I, I tell Jewish audiences, if I ever go into a bar mitzvah and the kid comes in with a Kindle, I'm, I'm getting out of there. <laughs> we should understand that there are things going on in this country that, have, that, that apply particularly to religion. For example, burial practices. I don't know whether you've noticed in Gaza the last few days, almost within minutes of a death, bodies are consigned to the earth. And because so much of my life was spent in the earliest years helping to bury people, I'm struck by the fact that something has happened in America where people are not being buried. I have a chapter on the American newspaper that is written as an obituary for the American newspaper because we don't live in Peoria anymore, so we don't need to read the Peoria newspaper. We read maybe, we watch CNN or MSNBC or Fox. Everything happens in Washington. There's no Little League score. There's no fire at 10th and Main Street. Well, one of the things that's also happened is that there's no more cemetery. People are not being buried in cemeteries. It is a momentous moment in America, and no one is saying anything about it. But it is... It is, it is uh, you know, Gramps is now in the closet, in a box, next to the Christmas tree ornaments. And, and what undertakers will tell you is that relatives will have somebody bear, uh, cremated, they never come back for the box. A, a friend of mine who had been a Jesuit priest had left the Society of Jesus uh, early, uh, late in his life, and um, he was a good friend of mine. He remained, he remained Christian and devout, but he, he was unhappy in, this, in his priesthood. At the end of his life, he died of a very fast-growing cancer. He was very angry, but he also reconciled with the Jesuits, and they came to his grave, to his, to his bedside. Well, when he was buried, uh, he told two women friends of his to take his ashes someplace. We were not allowed to know where it was. It's a big secret, okay? Um, I think it was Baker Beach, 
because he used to like to go there. And I think, he, I think he's in the wave somewhere. Anyway, one of his students called me about two weeks after the funeral and said, you know, Albert was a very important figure in my life, as he was in mine. And, and, and uh, I'm very sorry I could not attend the funeral, uh, but I would like to pay my respects at the cemetery. And I said, well, I'd like to pay my respects at the cemetery too, but there is no more city of the dead. There is no place for people, that Americans are going to visit the dead. We don't do that anymore. We can't, I was on this, this, this absolutely dysfunctional American family on a, on a tugboat going underneath the Golden Gate Bridge to cast off a, a rich grandfather in, uh, um, over by... Um, outside the, the bay in San Francisco, on a particularly windy day, may I say. And the, the ashes, of course, came back at us. So everybody comes back looking like we've been to a minstrel show. You know, and they, and, and they, they had the, the, the tugboat owner had the nerve to play I Left My Heart in San Francisco as we came under the Golden Gate Bridge. You, you've also said, and we don't have time to get into this now, but that... that that the what the desert of California has done by innovating cyberspace and pushing out into cyberspace is just an extension of this American preoccupation with pushing back the horizon, pushing back the boundaries. Yes. And ignoring where we are. Mm-hmm. We're in the middle of an intersection. The bus is coming right towards you. But I have to chase, check my Facebook account, you know. This, this obliviousness, it, we have it backwards. Henry Ford did not invent the automobile. We invented Henry Ford. We were anxious. We needed to get away from the house. We wanted to get away from our in-laws. We wanted cheap transportation. So we invented Henry Ford, who gave us the Model T Ford. <laughs> we did not... We, we, invent, we, were, we were stuck in the suburbs. We were lonely. We, were, we didn't want to deal with the mall anymore. So we invented Steve Jobs. He gave us this technology, which would allow us to, go, to talk to anyone in the world without leaving our room. Would, allay, would allow us to shop anywhere in the world. With, with, we don't have to deal with crowds anymore. We can just, we can just pu- push buttons. You have to acknowledge what, what there is about, about human anxiety that has created this technology. Mm. What is it that, is, that it is trying to meet? Why is it that all of you in this room refer to your, to your, to your cell phone and your grandchildren too? There's nothing more depressing than, an, than Gramps down in the middle of the street stopping everyone passing because he has to check his, his, his messages. Uh, <laughs> it, what is that, is, is, I guess is what I'm asking. And I, think, and I think that's another large question that we need to be sitting in the middle of our common life and we need vocabulary to grapple with. I need to do my radio thing. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today in a live conversation with journalist and essayist Richard Rodriguez. We're in the Outdoors Hall of Philosophy at the Chautauqua Institution in New York in a week devoted to exploring the American consciousness. So I'm going to ask one more question, and then again today, this is the only microphone that works, and please come up if you have a, co- a question, if you'd like to join the conversation. Um, you know... Um, You've been controversial over the years for uh, saying that bilingualism is not desirable. You, um, the lang- that the language of the minority, which was how you understood yourself, is inadequate. That you know that affirmative action is problematic. Um, it, you know, it's, it seems to me that that our entire way of 
grappling with difference, which we really only started to grapple with in this country in the 1960s. You know, we, we enshrine the civic virtue of tolerance, and it's not nearly big enough. And I, I wonder if, you know, you've been talking about these kinds of things for decades. Uh, you know, I wonder if, if many of the things we invented in these early decades are, they're, they're all half-steps. And if you, how you see, do you see us evolving into something richer and more adequate? Uh, I have to say yes, because I believe, I believe, I have faith. Um, but I also think that there, this is a, a, a deeply unhappy country. Um, and I, I, you know, that's one of the things that these kids who are converting to Islam will tell me. In London, as well as in California, and, and going to fight uh, in the Middle East for very dark causes is just how unhappy and dis, dis broken America is. Don't tell me about America, they will say. We know all about America. You know, I haven't seen my father now for eight years. He just left the house, and my mother's on meth, you know. Tell me all about America. There are things going on in this country. My best, one of my best friends, who's a policeman, said there is an unraveling going on in this country that no one ever reports on the evening news, ever, ever. But let's, let's let that pass. I do, I do think that, um, I, you know, when, when we use a word, a good Canadian word like diversity, I always feel like Elliot Trudeau or something, you know. It's, you should listen to that, listen to yourself when you talk about diversity. The, the word diversity comes from the word divide. So when you're talking about celebrating diversity, are we celebrating the fact that I am not you? What am, what, what am, I, what am I celebrating? It seems to me that the Christian impulse is not diverse, but it's to seek a commonality. Right. I mean, that, that move you made after 9-11 when you talked about you, you abhorred that act of terrorism, but you had to understand your kinship with those men. Yes, and I, I, so here I am in Cairo in this foreign city, and I keep hearing the Arabic around me, which I can understand a bit, but not so well, um, and it sounds Spanish to me. Hmm. And I, think, I said to myself, I said it to an Arab friend of mine, I said, do you, really, do you people, is it, why is there so much Spanish in Arabic? And they say, that isn't Spanish and Arabic, that's, you, what, what, you, what you don't understand is that there are three to 4,000 Arabic words in Spanish. Because Spain was once a Muslim country. And then he says, and will be again. But, <laughs> but, but then I remember my mother, my Mexican mother, standing at the door on a rainy day. Ojalá, she says. Ojalá, which means in Spanish, let's hope. Ojalá, uh, all the clouds are coming, it won't rain this afternoon. Ojalá, the, 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 the sale at pennies will be, will be on this weekend, and I can get you a new jacket. Ohala, and I did not hear, for the thousands of times that I heard that expression, I did not hear the name of Allah on her lips. Ohala, it came from the 16th century. And there are things, we talked about the genetic blood that we carry of ancestors and tribes. People are paying $450 to get their DNA checked, and they're finding out that they belong to civilizations their grandparents told them nothing about. Well, linguistically, too, we belong to, to civilizations far away. And what I began to realize, of course, is that the Muslim is within me. And it certainly was on my mother's lips. Okay, let's invite you in. Yes. 
Hi. Uh, I am particularly interested in looking at the intersection of religion and faith and homosexuality. So I would love to hear you reflect just a bit about what that's meant in your life, given the religion you were born into and who God made you to be. Um, it's, it, is, it is never... You know, I do not mean to offend, but, but so if, if this is offensive for you, you might me talk about my homosexuality, so be it, but I, that's not my intention. I do mean to talk about your brother and your cousin and your nephew. When I speak before Catholic audiences, invariably now, a man will come up to me afterwards and will say, my son is gay, a word that I don't use, by the way, um, because I'm morose. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I, wasn't sure you'd, I wasn't sure you'd get that. Char- Charlie, Rose, Charlie Rose once asked whether I'm a gay writer, and I said, no, I'm, I'm a mor- morose writer. Uh, I, this expression, being gay, is, so, is, so, is like a little, little sparkler at the 4th of July or something. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, one of the things I, I, I don't think we really, as a Catholic, I was surrounded by an iconography which was luscious and, and physical, and there was the bleeding Christ on every cross that I ever saw, and the, the eroticism of, 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 of the religion was, to my imagination, very, very rich from an early age. At some level, this church, which denied me, also gave me a great deal. I want to be clear about that. Um, I do not want to present myself in any way as oppressed. It did teach me and this is the point of Darlene. I'm, Darlene in the book is not Richard Rodriguez. Darlene in the book is a woman, a friend of mine, who has lunch with me in Malibu, California, on the day her divorce was finalized. She has since died of cancer. The chapter really is about women and religion. And I think that I came upon that theme, that subject, because I'm gay. I, be, I began to realize, traveling in the Middle East, where one day in Saudi Arabia a woman was stoned to death because she had been seen in the presence of another man who was not her husband. And as she was being killed, she ra- this is a newspaper account, she raised her fist against the man who was stoning her. The, 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 the homily this morning was about, about just such a scene. The, the desert again, people stoning the sinner, you understand. The traditions we come out of. Well, something is going on in the religion that I, that I belong to. And that is that women, again, are on the move. Uh, most, of the, most of the women, you, most of the atheists one hears in, the, in, in, in America now, the, the, the famous ones, are usually men. And you should ask yourself, why are they men? And why are so many of them English? Ask yourself some simple questions, journalist questions. Why, what are women thinking about? Why are there so many women in, in the church... Uh, and, and on the cover of Darling, there's a picture of the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem. And unlike all the churches, the mosques in, in the Middle East, where men are, in, the, are at, at, in prayer, there are the women in prayer. What is there about Christianity that makes it a woman's religion? Why do women so much more easily move to the altar in Christianity than they do in, in these other desert religions? What is it that goes on around us? Because I was a queer little boy who liked the company of girls... I knew very early that I was, I was going to be seen, this was as early as 11 and 12, because I hung out with girls. 
that that was problematic for boys. It would have been problematic if I was in the Taliban and they saw me hanging out with the women of the village rather than the men of the village. The, the, the intuition I had of being the feminized male at a very early age became, became something that I had to be cautious about but also became the, the source of my spirituality. Mm-hmm. You understand? That, that my, my relationship to women in the church, the nuns I dedicate this book to, who are the first feminists of my life, but also in some, some larger way to women who are searching now and even proposing that, this, that God, to even call God male is maybe to blaspheme, not as seriously as blaspheming by calling him um, an American, but, but, uh, <laughs> but maybe, maybe Abba is as much feminine as masculine. If Abba is the source of life, in any biology class I ever took, at Christian Brothers High School, I understood that there was egg and there was sperm, and that you couldn't just have Abba, uh, you know, self, self, self-duplicating. In, in, in some larger way, I think we are moving, though this century has yet disclosed itself. There are, there are girls being shot in the head going to class in, in Pakistan. There are women being uh, raped in American colleges as they, they are being raped in, in Indian villages. Something is happening in this country. The male is turning against the woman. The majority of American women are now living without a male, a married male. Something large is going on. At every, every Valentine's at my church, the, the priest asks the married couples to, to stand up. We all applaud them. Every year, their number gets fewer and fewer, the married couples, partly because they die off, but they're not duplicating themselves. And no one in the churches seems to understand that we are dealing with a different Sexuality of belief. Um, I don't want to talk about myself. I'm, all I want to say to the, the Christian churches is that the man that, that I'm, I'm with, I will say not even, I won't even give myself the grandeur of this word, but his achievement and his importance to me is that he has loved me. And he has taught me the, 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 the import of that word. The church will not give us that word. Forget that they won't marry us. I don't care that they won't marry us. They will not give us that word. They do not consider us to be capable of love because the church sees love as part of a sexual process of procuration. I, 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 uh, I date my emancipation as a homosexual man with the women's movement. and I noticed that Susan B. Anthony came to this place to, to, to argue for the vote for women. When women begin to call for the vote, it is a revolutionary act, and it liberates me. And I'll tell you how. For the first time, women are saying, I don't want to be identified merely with what, what I am in the house. In civic society, I don't have to be somebody's mother or wife or grandmother. I want to be judged equally with any man in the voting booth. And when women get the vote, they move out of the kitchen in something like the way that they allowed me several decades later to move out of the closet. These, these movements are related to each other. I cannot imagine my freedom without women. Thank you for that. Uh, I uh, self-identify as a cultural Jewish faithful Unitarian Universalist. <laughs> but... Nonetheless, or possibly because of, 
Uh, I, I want to go back to the comments that, that you made uh, addressed to this largely Christian community about the lack of leadership, of presence at the border uh, involving the deportation of children and the larger immigration questions which we Americans are not doing well with, to say yep. the very least. And, uh, and I wonder if you would comment on, on uh, a theory that keeps on boiling in my own head uh, about the paralysis of the, the former Protestant mainline leadership uh, and, and whether it is consciously or probably unconsciously due to the fear of the death, of the impending death of white hegemony. That's a, that, <laughs> pretty interesting questions. Um, I, do, I do think that uh, this failure is a serious moral failure. And, and I'll say it and before this largely Protestant audience, I think it's a, it's a very serious Christian calamity that the churches have not spoken more powerfully uh, and that we have allowed. There is, an, there is a religion in this country, and it's, it's, it's quite powerful if you are an immigrant child because you know that it exists, and I'll call it Americanism. And it has, it has great charm, it has great bravery, it has great grandeur, and it gave me great freedom. But it is not exactly my Christian faith or my Jewish faith. Uh, I am taught in, 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 in my religion things that are not exactly things that America teaches me. I am taught in my religion that, um, that I will fail, that I'm a sinful creature. I heard it this morning. I am taught in my religion that... Uh, that I can't make this alone, that I need you. I'm taught in America that my strength is as an individual, that I have to leave home. I'm taught in this country uh, contrary things is what I want to say. And in some way, I think, as we became, you know, certainly I'll say this about Catholics, as we became more and more mainline, we, be, we became afraid to say that we were in some way alien to the culture, in some, in some way quizzical about it. That's what worries me, that, that we have sort of put, turned our Christianity, our Jewishness into something, what shall we say, uh, polite uh, and nice, okay? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, David Brinkley once asked me, he said, well, you know, uh, there's no, what solution are you proposing? You know, there isn't any room for these people. And uh, I said, Sam Donaldson was about to pounce down my neck, and um, I said, there's only one solution to the problem of immigration, and that is that uh, you should have a law, a new amendment to the Constitution, that says that you have to leave this country after three generations. Um, because quite clearly, the, 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 the vitality of the country comes with immigrants and their children, and it begins to wane. I'll tell you, I'm nowhere near as interesting as my mother, I, I swear to you. And, and, I mean, she ended up typing in Governor Brown's, Edmund G. Pat Brown's office uh, for a while until she, she was fired because she mistyped. She heard on the, on the dictaphone a uh, reference to urban gorillas, and she thought it was uh, the animal. So she, she typed in urban gorillas, and so she was reassigned a job. But, uh, but I'm, I told Sam, I told uh, David Brinkley, I said, to keep this country, the country of the 19th century, this country, 
that, of, of this village, if you want to keep that country, you should send everybody who's been here for more than three generations to Australia or, or Costa Rica or someplace. But this country, I saw a picture, I think it was in the New York Times, of this little boy swimming with his sister. He must have been about 10. She was about seven. And I thought of their bravery, their extraordinary bravery in making that recklessness, their, their, their flirtation with danger. And I thought, God, a country that, that, that beckons these people, that's the country I'd like to live in. Uh, but unfortunately, as the, the White House announced, we are, we are um, expediting their speedy return. And not a word, not a word from the churches. Thank you. Two brief comments. Uh, Dr. Unger talked about the fact, and you've alluded, alluded to it indirectly, that we have no prophets anymore, that we've, that we've lost our prophets. There's nobody of any substance who speaks as the prophets used to speak. And I'd like to hear you address that. Also, I'm from Austin, Texas, and I doubt many people here know that the Dallas County judge has opened the city of Dallas to 2,000 children. I did that. Uh, he's supported by the churches and the schools. Good and, for him. And we're, yeah. We're trying to do something similar in Austin, and I've talked, I'm a physician, a retired physician. I've talked with some colleagues, and, and we're committed to, if the kids get to Austin, we'll take care of them. So there are things happening. <laughs> Let me say, just in, in, in response to the question about prophets, I, I think this country has plenty of prophets, but most of them are false prophets. Um, and uh, I think that the allegiance that we have now to the political class in this country is very spooky. And I mean, you know, uh, Rush Limbaugh publishes a book, and the line is longer than Madonna's book, you know. Uh, uh, the, 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 the seriousness with which people uh, give now to our political commentators at a point when our political life is in shambles uh, is, is very interesting. The, 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 uh, the, we, we, you get the leaders you deserve. I say this to Catholic audiences, you get the priests you deserve. You, 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 cre- you, you treat priests like, uh, like, you, like uh, pariahs and you make them, you, you raise them, uh, you send them to, to minor seminaries at the age of 12 where they have no knowledge of their own body uh, evolving sexually, and you're surprised that 40 years later, that priest is on his knees with a teenage boy. That that there is, we get the priest we deserve. We get the prophets we deserve. Look around you, look around this country at the the, the people who can change the country. Uh, Steve Jobs, at the very end of his of his life, he was getting so thin, and he came out with the iPad. I sell, I don't know what it was. Uh, I, I am without hope, too. Um, and he was so, he was wearing his Miyake uh, black um, turtleneck, which hung from his neck and uh, his jeans. And he'd been away for two years, and everyone knew he was dying. What we saw was his thinness. And um, he, he said, Look at how thin this is, he said. And I was then doing pieces on the news hour, which we don't do them anymore because the producers got the idea that you don't need essays in America. You don't need them anymore. We have a web page at the end which you can go to 
And uh, beside which, America doesn't want to hear eccentric voices now that uh, that the old Irishman on 60 Minutes has died. You don't need that anymore. You don't need, you know, uh, you need... You need a, a, a recap of today's news from Washington, uh, the, the stalemate yet again. And the idea of putting a singular voice on television for three minutes who speaks against and within the large national story, that's just too, it's too ex- eccentric. You understand? So we don't go to writers anymore. In the 19th century, we would have asked writers to talk about our political life, and writers would have. I don't. I mean, I grew up with people like Norman Mailer writing about uh, the Vietnam War. Now we ask, you know, we ask politicians to tell us about the Vietnam War or the war in Iraq. We don't. We get the people we deserve. There are, you know, I'm I'm often puzzled why we have decided. You pay for television. You pay for who's on and who's off. Why have we decided that tonight we are going to hear a conversation? from two dull people. Uh, and that will, that will constitute... So this crowd has obviously chosen an alternative. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'd really like to get both of you in, but we need to be quick because we have to clear this space out. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, my answers are too long, so they're I apologize. Fi- no, they're great. It's just, sure. we have these limits, yes. Uh, my question is, I, you guys mentioned briefly before interfaith relationships, kind of hinted at that, and I'm curious the differences that you might see between an interfaith relationship where, say, one person is a Muslim and another is a Christian, and a relationship in which one person has a faith, say Christianity, and the other one is an agnostic or an atheist. Um, yeah, do you have any insights on the yeah, differences? Yeah, I, I, I do. I, th- I think it's, it's both good and, and bad. The good is that I believe in brown... I believe that God has a brown face. I believe that, 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 that is within the complexity uh, that God is probably in a yoga position right now. Um, but I also believe that, um, that there is a difference between brown and beige. And a lot of young people I meet are into a beige, uh, where if you ask them... For example, to tell you the difference between, say, um, the hard ones are, if I say, can you tell me the difference between a Methodist and a Presbyterian? If, can you tell me the difference between a Catholic and a Protestant? Uh, one has bigger churches. Uh, uh, the, uh, and then you, you say, well, this, they believe this and they believe that. Oh, that's cool, they'll say. And everything becomes beige. Nothing matters. You understand that when when we begin to marry, we begin. Uh, as I, I told this to a, a, a group of young uh, girl students at a high school the other day, do not be beige. There are some things that are non-negotiable. The mistreatment of women, for example, is non-negotiable. That's not beige. You understand? That's black and white. And in some way, we have to be clear about what it is we believe. That the centrality is. Of, of love, of, of our experience as Christians. We either believe it or we don't. Love. I'm not talking about marriage. the centrality of love. And, and um, that's not negotiable. And when I come upon somebody whose, whose values move in a different direction, I learn from them in many cases, but they're not mine. And I'm prepared to say that. That's not my tradition. I, I really think that the new generation coming up is going to learn and teach us to live with robust identities and even convictions, understanding that the world needs their robust identities, 
but also at the same time that you want to live peaceably and creatively with different others. Yeah. That, that, that second, that, uh, the capacity of the young to live with, with people who are unlike themselves is quite stunning, yes. and you see that now. And they have a whole new set of instincts. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sir, you come back tomorrow and you get to be first. All right? Just want to... Um, Actually, I thought maybe uh, it would be fitting, especially since the notion of prophets came up, to... I just love this, these lines of Cesar Chavez that you had in your book. Uh, I am convinced that the truest act of courage, the strongest act of manliness, is to sacrifice ourselves for others in a totally nonviolent struggle for justice. To be a man is to suffer for others. God help us be men. You noted when you quoted this that now we would, he would say, to be human is to suffer for others. Yeah. God help us be human. But yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out there. What, I, I, you know, I got in trouble with that essay on Cesar Chavez because I don't make him a saint. Uh, I make him a human being. And none of the prophets are saints. And that's exactly right. The, yeah. the, the, you know, the, the, the brilliance of my Catholicism was always to acknowledge that we are failed creatures. Graham Greene writes a novel about Mexico in which the hero is a whiskey priest. Everybody else has left the village. Everybody has escaped. And this priest, who is a drunkard, comes and whispers over the chalice, the blood of Christ, hoc est enum corpus meum. This is my, this is my body. And he's drunk. But he's the, he is both a failure and a triumph. Look for your saints accordingly. Well, I think that's the last word. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Richard Rodriguez.